Hello, and welcome to ACX Everywhere 2023. I'm Andrew Wilson, and this episode is a series of candid conversations recorded at an ACX Everywhere meetup in Houston, Texas, in October of 2023. The meetup was at Segundo Coffee Lab, which was awesome, local art everywhere, coffee, snacks, in a beautiful space with great air conditioning. Kira Woodard, EA Houston organizer and host of the Mindful B2B Marketing Podcast, jumped in in this episode and was great in terms of giving effective altruism some context for us. Many thanks. I really appreciate the post-cynical optimism displayed by everyone in this episode. Thanks, Joe, for organizing, and thanks to everyone who participated. One thing to mention up front, there is a joke about blowing up Google's data centers to prevent AGI from killing all of us. And this is a joke that I thought was funny. Obviously, Terminator 2 reference, if you want to go there. There's so many cyberpunk references like this. And because my probability of doom is pretty high, I thought it was funny. And also, luckily, there's a public service announcement afterwards, which uh, is good. So please enjoy. I really thought this was great. Well, that was anticlimactic. We're waiting on you, man. Yeah. Well, so what is this? Houston, ACX Everywhere 2023 with EA representation in the house as well. Also, we can introduce ourselves by name or pseudonym or whatever. I'm Andrew Wilson, Sacramento, ACX. All right. William Hoppus, previously of Sacramento, now out of Houston. Connor Harris, out of Houston. Perfect. Yeah. So what is the name of this place where we're at? I like it a lot. This is El Segundo Coffee Lab, or at least that's what, if you look, if you look for it online, you're just going to find El Segundo. It's got this, I mean, we're in the, we're in the obviously gentrifying part of Houston. They had a giant warehouse. They tore it down for a coffee lab, a weed dispensary, which I still haven't wrapped my head around for Texas, a bunch of bougie shops, some really nice food. It's a lot of local artist stuff, which I really appreciate. Yeah. It's got some good stuff. Yeah, an old coworker of mine called this place the, uh, well, places like it, the quote, Brandon aesthetic. It's the sort of place where you could imagine guys named Brandon are proprietors of half the <laughs> shops. No, it's, it's nice. And I like a lot of all the natural light they, they still allow in. That is, that is great. Yeah. Yeah. They've done a lot here. Yep. Yeah. You've come here for the basically two week window between scorching hot and constant cold rain. It's not going to get that cold. It's. <laughs> I'm so moved here in March. Uh, <laughs> How long have you lived here, Connor? About a year and a half. Year and a half? Coming up on two years, yeah. Nice. It's actually one of the weird things about Houston. You think it's going to be full of Texans, but everybody's, you're from Boston or Baltimore or California or Panama or. Yeah, know. I moved here from New York, so. Ooh, all right. Exception. Blue tribe. <laughs> Sorry, man. Probably got that out. Yeah, you're great, tribe. You, you, you front like you're you're conservative or red or whatever, but that they're. But the real red tribe can smell me out. That's fine. I am a uh, I am a dedicated servant of the community here. I spent oh, yeah. I spent much of yesterday showing firemen's tools to small children and trying not to scare Ooh. them by waving an axe around. So nice. That's yeah, well, you were mentioning. So you're a volunteer, correct? Yes, sir. And you said, will you break those numbers down? We were talking about it earlier, just how much Oh yeah, okay. the, the volunteer, like just, yeah, the, I guess the org chart. On yeah, some so, level. so my department is the Sci Fair Fire Department. We cover, I think, 164, 165 square miles of territory up in the northwest suburbs of Houston. Mm-hmm. Service area is about 440,000 people. Uh, we have, I think, about 
400 or so staff, not counting administrators, of of whom I think 80 or so are volunteers. So obviously the volunteers don't cover one-fifth of the hours because we only have a quota of 60 hours a month to meet. Oh. Uh, so, sorry, 60 hours a quarter, rather. Oh, wait, so is that a minimum or a maximum? That's a minimum. All right. You can do more, but uh, yeah, 60 hours a quarter is what you have to make for they write you mad letters about how you're uh, not fulfilling your civic duty. Here. Yeah, so hold up. So that's full hour day, eight hours. So like seven, seven Saturdays a quarter. So it's the shifts are either for volunteers. It's either weeknights. So 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. the next day. And then oh. you can go off to work depending on mood. You can say, hopefully you've gotten some sleep that night or hopefully you haven't gotten any sleep that night because you've been doing more interesting things. Yeah. Or it's Weekdays or weekends, it's 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. the next day. That sounds With, brutal, man. I can't imagine doing that overnight thing and then waking up and doing a full day's work. Yeah, well, I currently don't have a full-time job, so oh, I... Yeah. Yeah. I've talked with a couple guys about, like, at that Ion thing, and the, the tech job market is rough right now. Yeah, that's what I'm... That's what I've been told. I, I've been trying to learn some more like systems programming stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I made it almost all the way through the Rust book. And this time, I've developed this amazing new technology called actually keeping notes on the things you read. And no, it's a cheat, man. Yeah. Dude, I will say, when I was at that Ion thing, there was a, like a hard math data science guy. And he's using a lot of Rust. And everything I've always heard has been like, it's R, it's Python, it's Julia, maybe. This is the first time I've heard like a lot of people talking about Rust. Yeah, depends on what you do. I'm I'm not an expert in this, but I think... Like no one is. I think AI is mostly done in Python. I mean, the, the interior components are written in proper systems languages, but then yeah. you interact with them in a Python interface. That's that's the vibe I've gotten, which makes Julia feel weird. Sorry, we will get off the technical deep end here. Yeah, but someone new joining us. Yes, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. I am Kira Woodard. I run the Houston Effective Altruism City Group. And a couple of years ago, I started the University of Houston chapter as well. So that's awesome. what I do at the moment. And then in my day job or by nights, by weekends, whatever, <laughs> I uh, have been running a marketing company and I'm transitioning that into a consultancy slash online coaching program where the aim is to teach entrepreneurs how to grow their businesses, but in a way that's like beneficial to society at the same time that they're making a personal profit. So awesome. And you have, you've been doing podcasting as well. We talked about that. Shameless, shameless self-promotion is absolutely what this is for on some level. So feel free. Oh, there's no shame around self-promotion. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Pride around self-promotion is very important. In fact, I'm launching a new podcast soon called the Caring Capitalist Podcast. Oh, yeah. I like that. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's going to be talking to business owners and you know, people who work in different companies where their company has solved some social problem like tangibly within it. An example, this is an example that I actually have on the podcast. This is just like a person I talked to who gave me kind of the idea to start this podcast. Like at some point I came across somebody who worked at an energy company, like a massive energy company based yeah. out of Europe. 
And they were like, oh, yeah, we just did this rebrand over the past couple of years. And like the whole company, the whole leadership, they all got together and they just switched the whole energy company to like renewables in like a two year time span. Like, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> You can do that? <laughs> so, yeah, there's lots of stories out there like that, but you don't hear about that on the social media platforms formerly known as Twitter <laughs> or Instagram or anything else because, you know, there's there's a media bias towards talking about, like, negative stories and just making everything feel like doom and gloom. Like, yeah. you can't, like, all of these issues exist, and they do exist, but it makes it seem like it's just getting worse and nobody has found a solution to it. And so the podcast is oriented around, like, finding people who have actually found a solution, implemented it in real life, and like can talk about that to other entrepreneurs who care about the same thing. Yeah, and especially since our media is run by, you know, rich communist theater kids. It's a good, good <laughs> counterbalance. No comment. <laughs> no, there's a relatively small number of holding companies that own a, a very, very large chunk of, of GDP. Vertically integrated, I believe they call that. It's a profit maximizing, gotta maximize it. A... I think we were talking earlier, yeah, capitalism and competition are opposites, actually. <laughs> yeah, that was it. There's that old Adam Smith. It's, a, it's always wild to go back and he's like, look, you don't need an official conspiracy. You get a bunch of businessmen together in a room and that's just what they're going to do. Yep. The incentives. Yeah. So they're incentivized to do it, you know, like too bad the set up that way, but awesome. Yeah. EA kind of as well. Do you identify as that? Not really. I'm just coming to meet him. Yep. Here. Totally. Yeah. Also, the conspiracy against the public line that Bill's made. Yeah. Put me in mind of. I have a friend from Mississippi, and he was talking about how he, uh, I think as an undergraduate project or something, he was lobbied for a bunch of legislation to remove barriers to business in Mississippi. The thing that killed it car dealerships. Yeah. Like, yeah, our dealerships yeah. are the closest thing that we have to landed gentry. How so? And if I were in a more contrarian mood, I'd say, and this is a good thing because. <laughs> oh, man, I would have to push back on that. People who are freed from the grubby demands of the free market to end their home regions against government. The good type of protectionism, then. And, yes. <laughs> and gulags on America, path to gulags on American soil begins with direct consumer car sales. <laughs> I, I have a tweet drafted about roughly along those lines that I've never said because I don't really believe it, but it's fun to get a rise out of people. Absolutely. But yeah, so car dealerships basically exist because legally cannot buy a car except through a, a dealership. Yep. Direct consumer sales are banned for... Uh, yeah, Tesla ran into this for a long time and still dealing with lawsuits on this, I think. so. Yeah, and one of Elon Musk's better political goals is trying to get that... Yeah. Trying to allow direct consumer car sales, which may or may not lead to a tyrannical government overtaking the US. But in the meantime, it uh, will make cars cheaper. I don't know. Seems like a gerontocracy and an oligarchy to yeah. me right now. But I mean, yeah, ruled by the old people. Yeah. But yeah. So especially in areas that like Mississippi that don't, Mississippi doesn't really have a thriving economy. And if any yeah. Mississippians are listening to this and they'd like to email me to protest, feel free but a lot of areas, you'll never find me yeah a lot but a lot of areas like the owner of a local car dealership which is basically hereditary because not only do you have to buy a car from a dealership they're insulated from competition and new upstars 
And they make a lot of their money on servicing, actually. So yeah. then once you have the yeah. long-term customers, you're making all that servicing money. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these places, like, they basically run whatever county they're in. You go to high school football games, you'll their names will be plastered all over the right. backboard or whatever. Like, scoreboard donated by, like, so-and-so and son, yeah. Toyota, or what have you. Yep. I want to bring it slightly back to EA real quick, because this podcast has been great, and also we haven't maybe had much of that. I mean, this is a strange thing because I want to talk about EA in a way that we're, people don't know, who only have heard about, yeah, SBF, you know, like, which is so unfortunate. Of course, the biggest piece of shit gets, is the one who gets the most publicity and just like smears EA, which is, I don't know. I took that personally a little bit, but also it's like, I don't even want to give the guy real estate in my head. What do you, right, but what, that's, that's media negativity exactly. bias, we were talking totally. about earlier. Well, then, Houston EA talking about it, then what's the, yeah, please, please, yeah, take that out of my head and talk about the positive things. Well, okay, well, let me just give a, a basic overview of what EA is, just for anybody who's only heard about it. Through. Thank you. Please, <laughs> please do that. Yeah, so effective altruism is essentially... A movement towards using careful reasoning and evidence-based approaches and applying that to the sector of charitable, you know, help and aid and giving such that we can help others and benefit the planet in a, in the best way possible. And so there is this whole movement that sprung up around this around 10 to 15 years ago. And it's been like slowly kind of growing and expanding into the, you know, thousands and then You've got, you know, lots of different people and, you know, different nonprofits and organizations that have centered themselves kind of around this idea and have like picked out little pieces of what they think is an effective approach to helping others to center around. So some of like the very well-known ones are like 80,000 Hours, which is a career-oriented organization yep. that helps you figure out kind of what career you might want to go into and they give some advice around that area and help you kind of link it to, you know, important causes that are in the world. And a great um, podcast. Yeah. So they have a great podcast. And then there's other organizations like GiveWell, which are, is like, have you ever heard of like Charity Navigator? It's like that. But like, they look at more factors than just like whether the charity is basically well run. Just like they look at how much is the scaling to, like how, how much does it cost to like help people? They have a very like global health and global poverty relief focus with the charities that they recommend, but they go really deep into evaluating the impact that it actually has on people and relative to other charities in that space that exists. So it's just really in interesting to dive into. So Charity Navigator is more about like, how much money do they spend on their own staff versus their actual mission? Whereas GiveWell is more about like, how effective is what they've chosen to do in the world at actually yeah accomplishing that. Okay. yeah i got that right okay yeah, yeah that's that's basically it yeah and in case any of you at home are wondering how this ties into acx there's like a lot of fellow traveler stuff where you show up at an acx event and there'll be ea people there talking about what's going on and next door will be a guy who's really excited about prediction markets and then you run to a third guy who wants to like set up prediction market for malarial nets in Prospera, which is like this, see, I'm going to meet this guy. I'm going to meet the trifecta guy out there. But I'll be honest, this is one of the things I actually really like about ACX. You go somewhere and there's a lot of cool people running their own like distinct thing. 
Yeah, and trying to take responsibility in the world in a lot of ways. So I hate to... Hopefully. I mean, I try. Sometimes a lot of times I fail, but I feel like I try. I feel because from the outside of like, I've heard a lot of EAs, but I'm not really part of it. One of the things that threw me about two, three years ago is it felt like for a long time there was like, hey, we need money. If you spend $1,500 a month, you'll get that's roughly enough to save one life from malaria in Africa. And that was kind of what I heard consistently. And it felt like the SBF money came in. And what I heard was, we are actually totally good. We are, everything we need to spend money on is gone. And now it's like, do people need money again? What is, what is going on, if that makes sense? So that's, that's quite a complex question. <laughs> so I don't work at a major grant-making organization, so I can't really speak to the state of, like, Someday. EA funding. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But I would say in general, I don't know that it's accurate that, like, these charities ever, like, ran out of funding needs, if that makes any sense. I think what happened is that, like, to my understanding, I could be totally wrong about this. Like, as EA grew in popularity, it attracted, like, some private donors who are well-funded, not just SBF, <laughs> but, like, that moved, like, billions of dollars to the movement, and, like, the bulk of that was, like, going to fund different charities. So they might, like, fund some of these charities that GiveWell is recommending, but that doesn't mean that the ceiling on the donations they could take have been hit. That makes any sense. So it's like they're always looking for more people to donate, and, like, a lot of people in the movement donate, a lot of people turn, try to turn their friends and family on to just like, hey, instead of, you know, giving to the local hospital, maybe you can look at yeah. uh, these different charities that GiveWell is recommending. I mean, they've done at least a little bit of research into it. Maybe it's a little bit more helpful in general, but, you know, it is what it is. Like, ideally, and this is my perspective on EA. Yeah. I'm not going to claim that this is what everybody thinks in the EA movement or outside of it, but. I feel like ideally you'd want a movement where instead of just like coming to some kind of consensus around what's the quote unquote best thing to do, you have a gathering place where people can bring their ideas together and through their own unique experiences and the different things that different people have learned, like either, you know, working in a charity or like just, you know, just their different experiences throughout their lives that can kind of come together to where through an open discussion, you can make up your own mind about what you think is effective personally, and then that affects your own choices, as opposed to trying to come to one big consensus on like, this is the best thing to do, you must invest in this charity, and this is the right cause, and we all need to be focused on, you know, preventing the world from turning into robots, or... No, that was that was <laughs> half the appeal of, like, malaria nets, is like, I have a day job, like, what is the best, like, effective altruism makes sense, What's the best way to spend my money? And I like the authority of this of like, done all the math. The most lives per life saved per dollar spent is malaria nets in Africa. Like, give to this, get the highest return. Does I mean, mean, if you look along one specific dimension, yeah, like yes. if you look around along like of the things that we know about and of the things yes. we've evaluated and of like specifically 
number of dollars per live saved by some metric, then sure. But like, if your goal is to just help people or do good for the world in general, then like, you can't just look along one dimension of things. So, I mean, it's use being authoritative is useful if you don't have time to think about something and you just like want to go and give well, pick a top charity and like just donate some money just to help somebody somewhere without thinking about it too hard. And that's perfectly valid. I'm just saying like, don't, don't conflate that with this is the best thing that a human can possibly do with their lives. And this, we are the absolute moral authority on, on, you know, the best thing that's going to be out there forever, you know, against all other variables that we may not have considered. Right. Yeah. Like for, in- for instance, the best thing we could do with our lives might be, you know, training to do uh, like uh, infiltrate Google's data centers and bomb their uh, like next generation AI that's going to destroy the world. Okay, this is a public service announcement to anyone's listening. Do not bomb anything ever. I don't care what utilitarian <laughs> argument anybody comes up with. Oh, yeah. Let's probably take that bit out for... Uh... Well, sorry. First off, we just got Joe here. Um, so, Joe, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, guys. Maybe this is just my inner nerd talking. When I talk with EA people and they bring up the shrimp argument or whatever, I kind of... I'm sorry, I could see it, but I kind of genuinely love it. I like people who are like, we're going to take the utilitarian logic. We're going to take it to a certain extent. I do kind of actually really like and respect that because it takes you to some really different, really interesting places. But you're looking like you're going to punch me. So I'm going to shut up right now. This is a podcast. We can't punch anybody over the audio. (laughs) Also, you're seated too far apart from each other. Also, public service announcement. Don't punch anybody ever. Yeah, Joe, did you want to say anything about this? About the shrimp? About the shrimp or about EA in general? No, I, 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 I like your, the discussion that we're having here about this. And especially the part about how when, when we talk about all these different causes and how to think about them, that, that it's the deep thought that we're getting into. And I think it's contributing something really useful right that people are coming up with well thought through ideas coming up with you know all the different sides of it and coming to conclusions that you really wouldn't without that deep thought it's it's helpful i'm sure you're listening to this and you're wondering what bill is talking about with shrimp (laughs) there is a school of thought among some people who follow the effective altruism movement that one of the best ways to figure out what is good to invest in in terms of charities or charitable causes is to uh, assign a utility to it through a utilitarianism lens. So you might have to Google utilitarianism if you don't know what that is because that'll be a whole 20-minute conversation, which I'm not the best at explaining it, but essentially they're assigning like a probability and a number of like how likely it is to help and like how good it would be if it did help and like they're trying to like multiply those out and like create an expected average amount of helping helpfulness (laughs) and so sometimes people can come to some very interesting conclusions about well if there's like so many billions or trillions of shrimp (laughs) in the world relative to like the number of people that there are then like even if you help the shrimp a little bit less then because there's so many of them that if you multiply the numbers out helping a lot of shrimp a little bit 
multiplies out to doing a lot of good. That's that's one school of thought. I'm not saying I necessarily agree or disagree with it. It's just one it's one analysis or one lens you can look at the world through. Yeah, basically if shrimp are even if there's a small probability that shrimp are sentient enough that they're suffering for our yeah. shrimp lo mein, shrimp yeah. cocktail, it's morally meaningful. Even if that's a pretty small probability they are sentient, there are so many of them. Yeah. Because yeah. like one shrimp gets you like, I don't know how many calories, but like not that much food. The more, I guess, steel man version of this that I've heard that I actually kind of buy is the beef over chicken argument. Because factory farming, it's pretty brutal. The animals are not having a wonderful life. And the, the amount of meat you get off a cow versus a chicken is just so much greater that there's a moral argument to be made for eating beef. Yeah, I actually buy this, and I've mostly stopped eating meats besides beef, even that I have pretty rarely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Turns out, vegetarianism, like, you can be vegetarian, or in my case, kind of inconsistently vegetarian, but still mostly. And you can still get enough protein. It just requires eating an absurd amount of beans. I'm kind of sick of beans. Yeah. Wait, do you, is, sorry, quick question. Is yogurt vegetarian or no? That would count as vegetarian, but not vegan, which is the stricter version where all animal products are prohibited. Gotcha. Some vegans would even include honey in this. And my general understanding okay. is that yeah, vegetarianism you can do without having any serious health consequences. It does require like careful planning. If you have special needs, like I do a lot of weightlifting and yeah. that you need to eat a lot of protein. So beans are some of the best yeah. resources. Also, uh, green split peas, I think they're yeah. like, I think there's something like 20% protein by weight, at least according to the possibly unreliable internet nutrition sources I found, which is pretty comparable to most meats, slightly underneath. Uh, so the bigger issue is there are like, certain amino acids and I think certain micronutrients that you can get in eggs and dairy, but not in vegan foods. So if you go strictly vegan, you need some other form of supplementation or you're going to start suffering micronutrient deficiencies. This is, do not quote me on any of this. I'm not by any means nutrition expert, but this is my general understanding. Well, my, uh, my recent, just super recent experience is that I had a tofurkey sandwich for the first time and it was good. You know, I'm not a, not a vegan or vegetarian, uh, diet adherer, but, um, I had that and it was it tasted like a sandwich and it was good. So maybe that's something you could add to your beans, Connor. I have a lot of turkey already, but sorry, not turkey. I have a lot of tofu already, but yeah, tofu plus rice plus any vegetables you want to stir fry plus house of tang Asian sauces. Yeah. They'll, they'll make some, you can make a decent meal that way. Yeah. But just circling back to the comment I made when I came in here, you know, that, um, you know, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about all this. Uh, about this way of thinking and the way this community talks is that, you know, it, you get into whether it's doing these kind of utilitarian calculations and this, this, this discourse, whether it gets you to that kind of calculation or whether it just brings you back to, you know, really just thinking about your moral framework 
it's just, I just find it very helpful to help sort through all these different, all these different possibilities and all these different thoughts. And, and you have so many different people with these kind of discussions who come in with all these different angles that, yeah, I find it all the time. We'll be having one of these discussions and people will come in with some angle that I've never even, never even yeah. thought before. You know, several of them that I've, I've read before or heard before, but then someone will bring something completely new angle into it, which just yeah, kind of a reset there and brings a new way of thinking into it that yeah. it was uh, mind-opening. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's the good part about doing discussions as opposed to like just reading about things, whether it's like a book or, you know, browsing a forum, because it's just the there's some different or like arguably better quality of bouncing an idea around with other people. It may be just like the way that human brains work, like we're just maybe like the additional context of like body language and tone of voice or just like something about the atmosphere of having people around you listening to their perspectives but it just becomes this more organic way of connecting with people that you just absorb information differently and tend to think about things differently than if it was just like your brain interacting with some text yeah also when you when you read something it's very easy to deceive yourself into thinking you actually understand it when you don't you? True. You ever heard that where there's three three ways of learning something more effectively? I haven't heard this, but go on. Yeah, it's like you remember it or understand it slightly better if you like write it down, but then if you teach it to somebody else, that's like the highest level of like both retention and elevating your understanding. Oh yeah, this this sounds familiar. Yeah. By the way, for anyone who's listening, if you don't have a uh, flashcard set up, like you, if you don't use Anki or some other app like that, you really should. Uh, so uh, past several months, I've been doing a sort of self-directed rash course in a lot of different programming technologies. For the first time, I'm actually using Anki, sort of this, this flashcard app where space repetition, you can put in information and then it will give you a subset to quiz yourself on every day. And it's pretty good at estimating what you've forgotten or what you need review on. And yeah, it's like, this is my probably third attempt to get through the standard Rust tutorial. And first couple of times I just read it, I was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense, makes sense. Think I understand this, think I understand this. Get yeah. a chapter later and realize I've forgotten everything that was so clear to me when I first read it. And now that I'm actually keeping notes and I have space repetition to quiz myself on stuff, I can actually like write code for the exercises in one chapter and not constantly have to look up stuff I've already read in the reference manual. So yeah. you you found the Anki system really useful. Yeah. All right, because I've I experimented with it trying to learn Mandarin, and I found that kind of like the best of the available tools, but it didn't get me where I wanted to be. Yeah, so for foreign languages, like, I've done a fair bit of language learning, but mostly what I care about is being able to read. Uh, yeah. Which is sort of the easiest skill. Yeah. Speaking is a lot more difficult. Like, there are languages I can read relatively complicated text in where I could not order a coffee at a Starbucks. Yeah, because if you if you read a really complex word and you're struggling to remember what it is, if you're reading, you just take the time. If someone's speaking, they they said that word and then they're on to the next one before you start looking it up in your brain. Right, yeah. 
forget who it was who wrote this, but someone wrote that learning to speak a language is much more akin to athletic training than it is to any intellectual exercise because it's literally just a matter of getting certain reflexes ingrained. Like if someone asks you in Spanish, like, como estas? You should be able to think instantly, bien y tu, because that's the proper response to como estas. Instead yeah. of thinking, okay, Cuomo means how, estas means are you. So you're just getting up to a system one response. More or less, yeah. yeah. But that, that, I guess that would be the analogy to a sports training, where you're getting a you know, system one response like a muscle memory kind of thing. Yeah, yeah but Interesting. learning programming languages, one feature of space repetition I found useful is closed deletion, so you can... Put in either a sentence or a snippet of code and take some bits out. So let's say you wanted to learn the syntax for like how to assign a reference in C++. So the card I might have for this, and I think I do have this in one of my decks, is like complete the following code fragment that assigns a integer variable x to a reference r, and the syntax is int ampersand r equals x. So then you can have closed deletions. You might have one over int ampersand. So question card will come up as complete the following code fragment, blank r equals x. You have to remember, int ampersand, that's the type declaration for reference. And then you might have another card for same text, except a different things deleted. So you might have int and r equals blank. And you have to remember, okay, that just goes x, because when you're signing to reference, you don't need additional syntax. But those are two cards. You might remind it of them, you know, like five times in a month or so. But that's basically all you need to know about a key part of C++ syntax. And what Alfie does is it'll remind you about that. At It's pretty good at guessing when you need to review things. And if you put that in explicitly, then like you will never actually have to look up while you're writing a program. Dang, what's the syntax for declaring a reference in C++? And this is, this is an Anki app? Yeah, so Anki is how it's spelled. Okay. Yeah, this is one of the standard recommendations for if you go on r slash language learning which is about foreign languages yeah. they'll recommend using it okay well not not yeah. just language learning but a little bit broader and just non-fiction reading in general was a discussion we were just having at the other table was how do people approach that how do you know especially when you're reading something that's new subject matter and there were some of the some of the ideas that uh you know practices that people were using is one one is it's one that that i found that that resonated for me is you can find other people's reviews of a book if it's a popular enough book. That's one. The other one was kind of like space repetition, coming back and having notes and and then coming back to key points. That's that's the kind of thing that I've done a lot. But something that I've found just recently that I've been doing is that you know when I'm when I'm getting into something that uh, requires a lot of thought and reflection. In, in nonfiction reading is that I'll read a chapter and then come into, you know, chat GPT or into Bing and ask it, you know, ask the language model for a summary of the chapter and what some of the key points are and bounce back and forth with it a little bit. And that's actually been pretty useful for me. I was, I was, I was kind of surprised by how useful it was. Yeah. And chat GPT has other nice use cases like you could if you're studying a language that has uh, lots of different forms for every word one thing you can do is like 
you could give ChatGPT say a list of verbs in Spanish or Latin and say, okay, make a CSV list of all the forms of these different verbs. And then you can just import that into whatever space repetition system you want. Anki, you can import CSV files into. Actually, saves a lot of just manual work of copy pasting from typing stuff in. Weird question, Joe, but what are you, what are you trying to get out of nonfiction books? Because what I'm struggling with is if I read like Roman history, it's just for fun. I just intrinsically enjoy that. Is it like you're trying to remember something or you want the book to change your actions immediately because it sounds weird but i cannot think of a book where like it would impact me a certain way to where i would change my daily habits where i would want to take notes like a lot of times that's really it feels like it's really simple does that make sense yeah i i'm i'm thinking about this in the context of reading something that's that's bringing a lot of reading reading something that's bringing a lot of ideas that you have haven't explored before and aren't familiar with and now you can get you know so maybe on a uh, on your own reading of it you're not catching all of the you know the subtle thoughts where you know either someone Another reviewer might have pulled that up when you talk about yeah. using book reviews as a way to do it, or but getting other book reviewers ideas where they're catching you know completely different themes that you missed. Yeah, uh, that's something that I found, and that's that's what uh, using say like uh, ChatGPT was able to do some of those same kind of things. To, and it's probably just because it's pulling from you know the corpus that includes other people's discussion and reviews of the book where you get oh it's basically like having a discussion with everything that's ever been written about it up to that the point that the model was trained right yeah i have like accuracy concerns with doing that <laughs> yes but yeah generally when i'm reading nonfiction, like bill said it's just kind of for fun so like my strategy, and this probably only works for a certain personality type, is just to like read as many books as possible by getting the audio versions and like listening to them at double or triple speed. But like I kind of read nonstop. <laughs> yeah, but this is something. This is something that bugs me, and it's a weird. Actually, let me try and give a more concrete example. There's like books that you read for information and books that you read for action and those feel very different and they feel like they communicate very differently. So for example, I see a lot of people, we all struggle with weight, except except Joe here, but the rest of us struggle with weight. Huh. And I see a lot of people who read a lot of different books about weight loss. They have a lot of different things they're informed about on metabolism and various things, but it doesn't seem to drive consistent changed changes in their behavior i rarely see someone read something and deeply understand something and they be consistently performing that different two years later and it seems like there's some fundamental thing there where there's a difference between you read and you understand something and you read and it impacts you in a way where you change your behavior consistently. Does that make sense? I mean, maybe, but like, what's your sample size? This feels kind of like anecdotal. <laughs> That's all I got. I got to be honest. And it might almost be even, 
I don't know, is it different genres or something? Because if you're talking about a book that's going to help you change your health and behavior, it seems like those kind of books are real. They get really explicit of here's what we want you to do. Here is our, here is our method. Follow this, this, and this versus, you know, someone who's writing, I don't know what, what's something that I, I know nothing about, right? Hey, you know, a history of Azerbaijan, which if I were to pull up a book on the history of Azerbaijan, you know, I could read through it and I might, I might just miss some of what, what, what's important about it. Right. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the kind of use case I'm talking about. Gotcha. Gotcha. Versus, versus a book that, that might be trying to change your behavior. And to me, it seems like a those kind of books, if well written at all, are going to be very, very, very explicit. Yeah. 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 I mean, personally, I did go into a health nut phase and like read like a dozen books <laughs> on nutrition and like did change my behavior for like five years and ongoing. So that's what I'm saying. You're kind of, I don't know what the statistics on that are. I don't read, change. see, I don't read books about that stuff. Yeah. I just click through all the links that come up on the internet yeah. about this, you know, one weird fruit you should eat every day or whatever. You know, doctors don't want you to know about this <laughs> method. I found that too. Like if I'm looking for specific information, like usually I'm looking up like business stuff to make my business better or something along those lines. Or I'm looking up something for work in order to get better at my job. Usually when I'll like read articles with the specific intent of learning something, they're not like that helpful unless it's just like it's I'm like at the very beginning. I don't know anything about it at all. Then maybe the first couple articles I read would be helpful for getting it over. Yeah. But any kind of like specific information, at least in my anecdotal experience, doesn't seem to be helpful getting it from like Google. It seems like you usually have to like read a in-depth book on the subject or like take an online course or some kind of, you know, learning course that's better than the average. Yeah, I'm a, I'm generally a fan of learning things in more detail than you have to. So like one of the other things I read during my recent systems programming kick was I read through a book called Advanced Programming in the Unix Environment which is essentially a reference manual of the entire Unix API. And there's a lot of stuff in there that you will read. Like there's like 12 different flags you can pass to the function to open the file. When you first read it, you think, okay, there's no reason anyone needs this many options. Why does this exist? But I decided, okay, I'm going to force myself to try to memorize at least like the salient details that are in this book. Even though it's a reference manual, it probably was written for the intent of memorizing everything. I now think I could write like relatively complex code that works tightly with the Unix OS and like without having to consult the reference manual too much, but also like the exercise of going through all of the grubby details. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, like I now understand like, okay, this is why operating systems are designed the way they are. Like they have to decide, provide this set of features this or that application is going to crop up in the API design they have, this and that away. The inspiration for this whole exercise was actually a, a blog post that a college classmate of mine named Ben Kuhn wrote. His website is thinkbenkuhn.net, K-U-H-N. He wrote a post called uh, In Defense of Blub Studies. In Defense of Is this off the Paul Graham essay? Yeah, so Paul Graham had this essay about how uh, 
comparing blob programmers who worked in boring technologies with uh, the elite chosen, like, smartest people on Earth who worked in um, ArcLisp, the language he invented. Yes. What Ben argued here is that high-level learning is useful, but any real system is going to run into lots of tiny, grubby little problems. And those grubby little problems are going to reflect some larger architectural concern. And you'll get a much better concept of like what those large issues are, for one, but also like lower level how to actually make something that works if you go through like boring technologies. So you use the example of like figuring out why it work in this situation. Yeah, it's... Or like another example of trying to learn like, everything about how Kubernetes actually works. And Kubernetes is really confusing, but so I've been told I haven't used it. But he says, like, if you try to learn, like, how all the Kubernetes primitives work, you'll see it actually mirrors pretty well, like, how fundamental internet technologies work. This sounds like, you know, this is a little bit different, a different kind of learning, right? So this is, you're learning these computer languages. It's almost like, what was the other human language you were talking about? Uh, which one? Were you working on a human? A, doing a language study on a human? Oh, yeah. Human? I mean, I've, I've learned a few different... Using the Aki for? Human languages. Spanish and German are the ones I could actually have conversations yeah. in. It sounds to me yeah. this is, this is a, a little bit of a different learning challenge, right? Where you have to learn... You have to learn a vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You have to learn all of the, uh, the, uh, the architecture of it and... All how all the um, all of the grammar, whether it's a computer language or the human language you're learning, and that's where it's you know you're talking about like these ten different ways of doing something in in this Unix um, in this Unix programming that to me sounds really similar to how you might just have to plow through learning a whole bunch of vocabulary in a language that you may or may not ever use, but you're going to need it at some point if you're going to speak the language. Yeah, and I think, like, people in general are too averse to, I won't say painful, but boring learning. Like, if you want to learn something, we'll eventually have to sit down and work through all the details. And a lot of pedagogical innovations of the past, however many decades, have been efforts to avoid this. So, like, for example, we've known since the 1950s that the best way to teach kids how to read is you work through all of the uh, what all the letter sounds are and all the letter combinations. This is obviously more difficult in English than in other languages because we have spelling that reflects late medieval pronunciation plus a lot of phonetic distinctions in Greek and Latin that we don't actually in our corrupt pronunciations pronounce. It is the best way of doing things. However, like there is a recent news story about how finally New York City Public Schools has abandoned this balanced literacy program, which is basically teaching kids how to read by memorizing words one by one. The advantage of this being, like, you can do the fun part, quote-unquote fun, right off the bat. You can read full stories. Yeah. Ultimately, it's a lot slower because you don't figure out how to like read novel words by yourself. You have to learn every individual word. Mm-hmm. And, again, like, I think there is a bit of, like, American anti-intellectualism involved here. Like, for example, like, sports practices. Like, everyone reads, like, high school football practice, for instance. It's going to be a lot of extremely tedious and repetitive drill. Like, football coaches are allowed to do things like deliberately inflict physical pain on 
people who aren't performing well or use collective punishment, uh, that people would have other connections if a regular school teacher tried to do. Okay, so what's the analogy here? So languages and sports. So yeah. I'm I'm way beyond the age where I'm going to be able to go out and start uh, training to be a, a uh, top-notch competitive tennis player. Languages, uh, there's you know there's probably probably getting more and more challenging for me. So I think my approach now is I'm just going to wait and then I'm I'm going to download mandarin russian and uh, maybe yeah, yeah translator my, app with, no my neural link uh, i'm, I'm just gonna wait for that just wait for that yeah yeah, yeah but my point is basically like everyone agrees that like if something's sufficiently important then you're suffering a lot in for its sake is justified such that like the general american like Philosophy is, you know, high school football is important enough to, like, make people suffer for it. Learning things that aren't <laughs> sports is not. So you have all these efforts to make learning fun, try to avoid drill and kill pedagogy. This drill and kill is a phrase you'll hear tossed around a lot if you, uh, fun is bad. This is my say. No, like, like the fundamental underlying metaphysics here is everything that is good requires pain and sacrifice. And like, no, I want good things without the yeah. pain and sacrifice for obvious reasons. Yeah. So the thing is, like, if you imagine there's a Pareto frontier of like how fun something is and how good it is, like yeah. pe people will choose things like based on various points of trade off. But like there is ultimately a trade off. It's like, I think this was a less wrong post once, but I can't remember. Someone commented, I tried some of those like really dorky looking shoes that have the individual toes. Yeah. And I was really surprised. They're extremely comfortable. The reason is like people choose how uh, people choose what shoes they want to wear based on some combination of how, how cool they look and how comfortable they are. So if you have really dorky looking shoes that people are nonetheless willing to wear, they must be pretty comfortable. So I apply the same reasoning to first learning techniques, but like, imagine people choose learning techniques based on some combination of do they work and are they fun? The least fun ones no. that are still I'm gonna never fight last on in common use I'm gonna fight on it. are probably the most effective. Now, granted, like, I'm willing to admit this is not absolutely foolproof logic, but it is a, I think it is a good heuristic that if something seems unpleasant, but people are doing it anyway, there's like, there's sort of a Chesterton's fence argument. It's probably survived for a reason. Not necessarily, yeah. but likely enough that it's worth looking at pretty closely. So, so obvious counter, both the high level and low level counter argument here is you're, you're phrasing it in a two dimensional trade off space where almost everything we face is multi dimensional. So, if you're trading off like how effective it is versus how painful it is, there's obvious third factor, which is how expensive it is. Like you can learn if, if you want to learn a foreign language, you can use the painful method, which is Anki. You can use the easy method, which is Duolingo, probably. Or something. Yeah, yeah, which is not super effective. Or you can just hire a full time tutor. You sit down with a full time tutor and you pay them four hours a day, six, seven days a week. You're going to have more fun and get better results. You're just spending a thousand plus dollars a month easily. So, but this is very fair. Yeah. There are other axes to trade off on. Yes. And I feel like this is, 
this feels philosophically wrong to me, and I'm going to overstate my disagreement a little bit. Feels like the entire point is at every step along this transition, where those specific trade-offs we have vary depending on people's situation and kind of where tech is. Yeah, and and to your point, I, yeah. someone was it was it one of the Marginal Revolution guys commented like, with all the unemployed PhDs we have around, yeah, you'd expect like. You could probably hire like an unemployed history or like literature PhD to like yeah. privately homeschool your like three or four kids for not that much more than you'd uh, you'd pay sending them all to private school. So why don't we see a return with a V to like 18th century aristocratic tutoring? Yes, actually, and ironically, why don't we? That kind of I remember public school. I'd have gone for a private tutor in a heartbeat. Like it sounds way better. My my off the cuff <laughs> reasoning for this is that well the the PhD in history is too specialized like wouldn't wouldn't in the 18th century you have like a tutor who can pretty much teach your kids everything they need to know it's just like one person well I guess everything you needed to know back then was basically like Latin and if you could speak Latin you were considered educated Rudyard Kipling had a couple of funny poems about how the uh, British Army of the time would just hire randos out of Oxford. It's like, well, he he's a son of Lord so-and-so, and he got a first in Latin, and he must be qualified to lead a regiment. Oh, clearly. Yeah, but also, history PhDs do have to pass quals, which I think involves, like, you have to know more than just your specialty. I, I wouldn't know. I'm not a... Uh, I, I took exactly one history class in college, and it was about ancient Egypt. It was for gen ed requirements, and it was notoriously easy, so... So did we ever figure out the reason why we haven't gone back to 18th century tutoring or what? So I think like a lot of sort of social stigma. So like if you go around areas of the country with like unquestionably like top five or top one percent economically, people there will call themselves middle class. There's this. Yeah, but there's like people don't like having visibly upper class habits in general or identifying as such. And. One of those is like having anyone who could be called a servant. So like people will know hire hire maid services, but they won't have a live-in maid. Yeah. And I think hiring private tutors falls into that like a bit too explicitly aristocratic for a country that's nominally democratic and like egalitarian. Couldn't another reason for that be that um the 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 goal or the purpose education is is different right so the kaplan so just just the that um you know you're the you're either providing an education that's under just trying to satisfy the requirements of a uh you know a government uh, curriculum right or or a government set of learning objectives yeah right that that uh that has been laid out as that's what we're trying to accomplish, or trying to provide education that will allow someone to do well on a certain standardized test, or to prepare for for entry into some kind of a uh, secondary or college program. Yeah, that where you you know you have to have certain. I don't know. I don't want to say check the boxes but you've you've no, covered there's, certain there's bases right yeah like there, there's very much that if you want to shout out middle class or upper middle class lifestyle 
you gotta go get a bachelor's. It's getting to a point where it feels like you gotta get a master's. And if you deviate off that path, you might be able to get better results. But you're likely, there's a good chance you'll get a lot worse. And so maybe going back to your historical examples, right, is, well, all it took then was having read Aristotle. Well, that, that's more medieval. Yeah, okay. So by the, time the, by the time the Renaissance rolled around, you had to, had to know a bit more than just Aristotle. It was still very Greek and Latin heavy. You look back at, for example, so the college board, which was started as the college entrance examination board, they have a lot of their examinations that they started back in the 1910s and 1920s up on yeah. the Internet Archive. They make for fascinating reading today because you can look through the foreign language exams, for example, and uh, like the stuff that they expect second-year French or German students to do is frighteningly difficult. Make accurate translations of very complicated English literature that has lots of relative clauses and other syntactic complications into German. Obviously, that's a much different the other way around. And then you look up their mathematics requirements, which are laughable. Like the uh, Wait, laughable? Yeah, like the, the summit of mathematical achievement for a high schoolers who were going to the best universities in the country back in the 1910s it was like the ability to divide two algebraic expressions or like compute percentages by hand but the percentages might have like 18 and three quarters percent of like 221 and a fifth this reminds me of a of a tv show it's a ricky gervais show i forget what that an idiot abroad was the name of it yeah Nah. And so they had his, um, his, his guy that he sent around to all these places around the world as a fish out of water kind of thing. I think nah. he went to, uh, I think it was in, in Jordan. He was at the, maybe it was a Petra site. Yeah. And looking at some, some artifacts and everything. And, and, the the character made the comment that, yeah, I'm not impressed. Right. How hard was it back in those days to invent something? You're sitting there and you're holding your food in your hand and you say, oh, I'm going to invent a bowl. How hard is that? It kind of goes to, to your math thing, right? Yeah, it's some tweet I read recently. It's uh, some of the lines of, imagine being a, uh, like a general back in the ancient times. You could get hailed as a genius military strategist for coming up with things like troops don't fight well when they're starving or if there's a heavily fortified mountaintop, avoid making unnecessary attacks on it. Yeah, right. Yeah. I got the basis. And, and in this, in this show, the, one of the punchlines was that, you know, the guy says he had a great idea for an invention once. It was a transparent toaster, right? Because you're, you're, you're sitting there and you're watching your toast and you keep having to pop it up to see if it's done and then put it back in. Wouldn't it be cool if you could just look right through it? Right. And so he Googled it and there were already like 10 of them you could buy. Yeah. So he's like, shit, everything's already been invented. It's too hard now. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I guess my point is like, at least for science and math education, like standards at the top end have improved a lot over the past century. Yeah. And uh, the, the issue is more like, hey, we could be doing a lot better than we are even now if we use stuff like space repetition yeah. more extensively. And B, like, yeah, you definitely could hire tutors to like... Yeah, like I think... That maybe for science and math, it'd be a bit more difficult because if you have a STEM PhD, you do have... Options other than academia and yeah, math. 
FOMO's cost disease means that filters into the uh, going rates for what you have to pay people who are doing academic-adjacent things. I feel like the Iron Man is so many people are in school until they're 24, 25. And if you've been through public, even even a lot of the privates, there's so many things that feel inefficient. It feels like you should be able to get everything you'd get in a master's by the time you were 21, maybe. Like, it seems like there's easy ways that you should be able to shave years off that. And as you get into your career, you start to think, man, I really wish I was four or five years younger. Or, man, I really wish I'd been in my career because it makes a difference to what you're earning or where you're going at any given time. But if they shorten the education cycle, how will the schools make money? That's, I, we can just pay all the, would rather pay governors. I'd rather pay good farmers market governors than the big corporate colleges. Yeah. Also, I mean, a lot of the reason school is as it is, is parents demands like, yeah, they, like there have been experiments where you know, like, uh, schools introduce much more regimented forms of learning. Direct instruction, which is a set of techniques introduced by a fellow named Siegfried, Ed Siegfried Engelman, I think his name is. Yeah, It's basically a method of approaching elementary education that it's very regimented, like lessons all follow exact scripts where yeah. there's lots of choral call and response the teacher leads. And uh, it worked really well, but teachers didn't like feeling like automatons. And then, but also like parents didn't like their kids feeling like, like automata either. Because no, learning should be fun. Where's the joy of discovery, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah and like, also like, why do high schools still start at like 7 a.m.? Yeah. Even though literally everyone who studies pediatric medicine agrees that it's terrible to make teenagers get up that early. Hey, I think some of that's actually changing now. Yeah. Part of the reason, by the way, uh, my old high school changed it. The biggest objection was sports. Right. Because sports are important and learning sports. is not. How do school make money if not sport? <laughs> I think it was like, this wasn't even in like, this wasn't even any place where school sports are a big deal. Yeah. It, yeah. This was Connecticut. No one actually cares about high school sports in Connecticut. No, this is because you see this all the time in California, and it's so weird. People care so much about soccer. They are so into their kids' soccer game. And it's like, your kid's not getting a scholarship. I've watched you. Your kids don't just, like, have a competitive team. You're paying for a trainer to come out, like, two, three hours a week for this team. It's They'll travel over the state, and it's like... People get super into it, and there's serious money in, like, middle school, high school age kids' soccer. It's wild. Yeah, I mean, well, big portion of this is the uh, D3 college athletic admit oh, process. Yeah, it's that, yeah, sort yeah. of a, a backdoor into selected liberal arts colleges. If you are a semi-competent sports player and yeah. you have an, an in with a coach uh, of one of these, like, smaller D3 colleges... Yeah. Well, it's also something that people enjoy it too, right? Yeah, so maybe maybe some of it is the parents enjoying in some of these cases more than the uh, than the student athletes. But if if it's something that these kids really are enjoying and it's you know it's part of what our 
our very economically advanced society allows us to do, then that seems like a good thing. I feel like a very economically advanced society could work out some compromise where you have high school sports and you also don't force teenagers to get up at 6 a.m. <laughs> it's no, I actually kind of agree with Joe here. I actually really like because I played soccer as a, I crapped on it, but I played soccer as a kid. I really, really liked it. It's the it, it's there is something that's not computing in my mind where there are real people in my head who will pay like. 1500 a month per kid for them to go to a private school. I know they're dropping hundreds of dollars a month on their kids' soccer, but they won't get a... And, and there's private tutors for the SAT, but they don't just get, like, a governor. Like, that's the thing that throws me. Something's, something's not computing there. And yeah, I don't get it. it's like not having explicit servants is the issue. Like, yeah. If like, you think about the app economy, a lot of apps are basically servants as a service. That's not yeah. too logical. Um, like, Uber Eats, if you're like, what's the real difference between like ordering in Uber Eats for 14 meals a week, which I'm sure like most listeners probably know someone who does close to that. And what's the difference between that and just having a live-in chef? Cost and scale. Like, cause I, this might sound weird. And it's the, it's the optics of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the optics. Like a lot of people could afford a full-time chef probably for like, I don't know, maybe twice as much as you'd pay ordering Uber Eats for everything, but like for much better food quality and like you have a job that does that yeah have a job that allows it might be a worthwhile trade but yeah just people don't like having explicit servants it feels weird might get weird looks if you mention it i don't know yeah it might be for the same reason that people will like mow their suburban lawns by hand for like three hours a week as opposed to just like shelling out 30 bucks a week for the same cost <laughs> because, I mean, yeah. you don't actually save that much money because like you still have to pay like in terms of your time and then all the fertilizers and whatever to do all of that so well, <laughs> but it's like you don't want to be like that guy well i'm that guy oh yeah um, I, I am become sorry go ahead and now follow you up i'm that guy but but i just i just view it as part of my i don't know exercise and part part of just what I do, right? Yep. Opposed to front lawns in principle. Back lawns, great. Like yeah. back lawns are your own private paradise. You can do whatever you'd like with them. Front lawns, just constant slavery to the false idols of suburban respectability. Absolute waste of resources. Should not exist. Boom. Drop the mic. Joe, I'm against you. I hired a mate. <laughs> Sir, I'm gonna pick a fight on this and it's worth it. I hired a maid for the first time in a long time. She came in, she cleaned my apartment. It was way nicer than I would ever get them. I'm a hundred percent on maid service if you can afford it. This is, you're listening to this, go make more money. It is a wonderful thing. So when are we getting maid GPT? I, I, I it does feel weird to have like someone come into your home and clean for you, but it is also, Anna is, is the pumpkin spice latte of bouginess? It is unironically really good. Like, aren't pumpkin spice lattes the pumpkin spice latte of bouginess? Yes. I, yes. So, just the other day, we were trying to tell you that you should get a Roomba, 
So you went all the way and got a maid instead. So I experimented because Andrew was trying to get me on the Roomba train. I think the idea is because it seems like, sorry, so I'm looking at a service. I'll just be honest here. It's about 110 after tip for her to come in for about two and a half hours. All right. I can't afford that like every week, every other week. So what Andrew was trying to sell me on is like, Roomba during the month and then she would come in at the end of the month because I'm I'm a guy. I'm not going to clean it that well. You should meet Kyle, one of the medics at my uh, fire station. There are there are guys Speaking who can compuls- clean like that. Yeah. Most compulsively neat person I've ever met. Yeah. I am not that person. Have, have you tried having someone come by to cut your lawn? Yeah. Okay. What made you stop? You just wanted the because I've heard two things. Some people feel weird about and there is something different about doing it yourself and like a, like a sense of ownership thing. No, mine is really, I just, I like the, I like the little bit of extra exercise that it gives me. Oh. It's something that um, when I, you know, I'll, I'll come home and I'll see that the, you know, that the grass is getting longer. Yeah. And it's just, and, you know, an extra, even if I'm tired, it's something that's just an extra 20 minutes or 30 minutes of, of activity that, that I don't dislike doing. Okay. And it, it kind of it nudges me. It's a, it's a self-nudge. All right. I feel like I'm missing a reference here. What do you mean by self-nudge? The, the nudge just being creating a small incentive to do something. That gotcha. gives you the little extra boost you need yeah. to, to not do something else. Kind of where a thing gets habituated. All right, got it. Also, small correction, actually, the, the neatest person I've ever met is probably my old college roommate. So, yeah. yeah. That's a lucky <laughs> arrangement. <laughs> yeah, well, so not second to speaking roommate because we had a common room and then multiple bedrooms, so I did not get free cleaning services from him. I, I did get a lot of annoyed... Uh, but when I left some of my possessions in the common area, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but my own room was kind of a disaster zone. I have improved somewhat. Yeah. What if you didn't improve? What if you just solved your problems with mud? I have, I have a friend who got me started on this thing. Because at a certain point in life, it's actually kind of... This is going to sound weird. It's actually kind of challenging to significantly improve your life with money. And it... I have a friend who has pushed me to do this, and it is really kind of weird what you end up with. Like, you think you're going to spend money on a bunch of weird stuff. You end up spending money on, like, really good underwear and socks. It is, like, absolutely fantastic. Okay, so, fill me on expensive underwear. Okay, it, it is... How do I want to phrase... So, there's this thing called Beneath. I strongly recommend you give it a try. You, is this not, just for men or for women as well? I, I'm, I'm not familiar. I don't know what it would work with women or what's great for them because a lot of it is how it holds certain parts of you in a way that prevents abrasion or scratching or anything. So I don't, I don't know what the female equivalent is. Female equivalent is definitely getting a custom fit bra. Ooh. And attest to that improving my quality of life by 200%. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, these are real things. Like, truly horrific, decadent luxury is washing your sheets with those fabric softeners, and then you get in your bed afterwards, and it's so nice. 
Yeah, I mean, I thought getting the second cheapest mattress at Ikea was a barely justifiable luxury, so... Connor the Spartan. Third cheapest, actually, possibly. I can't remember. But then I also dump hundreds of dollars into uh, books I will never read, so... That's something... Just spending money in what feels like an intentional and consistent way is kind of hard. I find myself wasting money on, like, random weird stuff I'm not really thinking about all the time. So, love it kind of experimental. Yeah. All right, so we are way off track here. Joe, something serious about how we're going to save the world. Come on. What are we saving the world from this time? This time. Got to be safe from something. Come on, Kira. What is it? She's got something in mind. Just humanity in general? I don't know. <laughs> you want to talk about the uh, Silicon Valley Bard extension in the Bay Area? Uh, th- th- this generalizes. So, like, yes. So, like, uh, Silk, so, so the VTA, Valley Transit Authority, is going to spend like $12 billion on a few miles of subway. Uh, yeah. The reason they're doing this is yeah, they're digging it under this road that goes into uh, downtown San Jose, but. They didn't want to like actually affect the road because a couple of businesses might complain. So they are spending twelve billion dollars to dig it like something like a hundred feet underground. It's going to take a minute or so just to, like ride the escalators down to the platforms. Spending other people's money is better than you know like having a angry like owner of some strip mall business complaining at you at a public meeting. And this times like a million is why. We can't build anything anymore. And it would be those public meetings for the next 20 years before you could do anything. Yeah. Is this a Houston problem, though? I get the feeling no one in Houston has ever said no to a developer or a freeway. Like, I I feel like it would be against the law. There's a bit of a controversy right now with the I-45 rerouting. Yeah, they tear down the whole first ward for that. I don't care. Like, they... (laughs) I-45 is terrible, but in seriousness, probably not worth $7 billion or whatever you're planning to spend on it. Yeah, yeah the, the other thing is Texas Central, the private high-speed rail effort, they're building it almost entirely on viaducts through cow pastures to avoid annoying the cow's owners. Oh, wait, so sorry, they're building high-speed rail out in Texas? Yeah, there's some Houston to Dallas. It's a private effort. Yeah, it's oh. going to go from the uh, Galleria here to through Brazos County, so not the direct route. It's going to swing a bit to the west. I forget where the Dallas terminal is going to be, but yeah. Anyway, there's a uh, there's a bunch of uh, angry farmers on the way who have gotten sympathetic county officials to try to throw as many legal roadblocks in the railroad way as they can, including, like, recently a legal effort to try to deny them eminent domain authority, which is something, like, every other railroad has, in U.S. history, more or less, has gotten. So they couldn't do that, but Texas Central is spending a lot of money to run the trains on viaducts to reduce the amount of land they have to consume. Which is something they do in like Japan, where most of the country is mountainous and arable land is at a premium. If you haven't noticed, there's a lot of Texas. Arable land is not really at a premium here. So why don't, and I always feel like I'm running into this, 
presumably the railroads have a lot of money and stand to make a lot of money. Why don't they just beat these farmers over the head with a sack of cash? Like, I feel like eminent domain means we will pay you a fair price for your land. Why not just come in and like, here's three times what your land is worth. Shut us and give, shut up and give us this land. What's, I feel like I'm missing something. Well, there's sort of a holdout problem where like, if like, if the railroad needs to buy out 10, 10 owners, yeah. like they've bought out nine, but not, they need all 10. If you're the 10th, you have like, insane it, you, you, yeah, you can hold out for like, literally like the entire net present value of their predicted profits. Then I lose a lot of sympathy. If you're getting but four or five X, what your yeah. land is worth and you're holding out for more. Yep. Yeah, but yeah, like, uh, I know France, they, SNCF does overpay for land in order in order to head off farmers' complaints. Yeah. Although, like, France also had some cost overruns. So in a previous life, I wrote a lot about uh, infrastructure politics. Yeah. So it's, this is why I thought of San, San Jose Bart when I had to think of something to get the conversation rolling again. So in, in France, they're running into issues with a line along the Mediterranean coast. There, it's like, Basically, rich people who like, want to live in the area that the Impressionists all went to. In oh, Maine, yeah, yeah. And they don't know a uh, train line spoiling their views of the Alpen foothills and yeah. the Mediterranean coast. Uh, same thing for uh, High Speed 2 in the UK, which was going to connect London to Manchester since cut back to Birmingham. It, there were massive cost overruns, basically because the line had to run through a bunch of landed gentry's backyards, oh, and right, they complained yeah. so much they built like several dozen miles of pointless tunnels through terrain that does not really need a tunnel just to hide the line from sight. And what this also means is that like would have been a very nice picturesque train ride is now just going to be complete darkness, so that yeah, a few hundred or a few thousand landowners don't have to look at a cat during fire in the distance. Yeah, well, if you and if you look around here, there's just outside of this building, there's a lot of development going on. You can see, yeah. you can see buildings going up all over the place. If you go through Midtown, just driving through there yesterday, I noticed everywhere you look, there are cranes and new and new buildings going up. And if you get outside of the loop, outside of uh, even Beltway Eight or Ninety Nine, you see development going up all over the place somehow somehow though we still have uh, despite having maybe lower friction than in other jurisdictions we still have you know all these kinds of barriers going in like for example up in cow pastures that are being developed up by where i live yeah you, know, you, know, you constantly run into this situation where you have you know another development down the road and now we have all the people, all the people who just just moved yeah. into an area that was developed seven years ago, saying, "Oh my God, they're going to cut down all those trees." Yeah, Where, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Like, That's you why like, you're here. You just did that seven years ago. Yeah, right? if you like trees so much, to the bottom yourselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the nice things about Houston culture is people don't really care about preserving old buildings that much here. Uh, part of this is like. There are clauses in the city charter that make it very difficult to pass certain sorts of land use regulations. If you go out to Austin, for example, like most of the land around like University of Texas is 
single story, sorry, not single story, single family houses that are all in historic districts. So you couldn't even replace them with like a different single family house. And you read through the uh, descriptions of these areas, the Austin city government website, they explain why all the historic districts exist. And they'll say things like, this is a perfect example of 1920s subdivision architecture. It's like, this looks like literally any random town in the Northeast. And that's it for this episode. Sorry for the hard cutoff. Part two of recording at the Houston meetup will be up soon. More effective algorithm and uh, a bunch of other things. So stay tuned.